0: From the studios of PostScript Media and Canary Media. Sinduja Rangarajan has a degree in computer science, but she realized pretty quickly she didn't like it as much as she expected. Sinduja did like telling stories, though, and so she went back to school for journalism.
1: You know, when I got my journalism degree, I realized that I have these skills, programming skills and analysis skills, the ability to just open Excel and not get lost. And so I realized that I could put them to good use. About a decade ago, she became a data journalist.
0: Sinduja pours over data sets to uncover stories about systematic inequality and in immigration, school rankings, microloans, diversity, and tech. She's now a senior investigative data reporter at Bloomberg. And this summer, she turned her attention to corporate climate accounting.
1: You know, the amount of hype uh, as you open your browser or as you, like, go to shop, you... To see all of these climate pledges, or you see something as climate friendly, there's just so much hype from corporations about emissions and emission cutting. And I was like, "Look, I'm a data journalist. Uh, is there anything we can do about this?" And we started digging into uh, corporate emissions.
0: Sinduja linked up with Bloomberg investigative reporter Ben Elgin. Ben's written extensively about problems with carbon markets. They wanted to compare the difference in large corporate emissions when they factored in renewable energy credits. This is known as market-based accounting. And when they actually accounted for the generation mix that powers a company's operations, that's known as location-based accounting. Ben suggested they dig into data from the Carbon Disclosure Project, a nonprofit that collects and scores corporate climate pledges.
1: They have some of the uh, most comprehensive data on this issue. So again, you know, analyzing that company by company, I think has never been done before. How big was that gap? That gap was massive. You know, we uh, looked at around 6,000 reports in 2021. We analyzed 8,000, you know, filings across four years from uh, 2017 to 2020. And we found that, you know, uh, in in 2020, 1,318 companies uh, had a difference of 112 million metric tons CO two between their location and their market-based emissions. So that's huge. We're talking about you know how much 24 million cars would emit in a year.
0: Intel, Pepsi, Starbucks, Procter and Gamble, thousands of the world's biggest companies rely on renewable energy credits to make sustainability claims. It's a very common and controversial tool. And there's increasing scrutiny into how these credits distort our emissions reality.
1: It makes it seem like there's all this progress, but it doesn't give like a accurate accounting of what's going on.
0: This is the Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, two conversations on the state of corporate sustainability. We'll talk with Bloomberg's Sindhuja Rangarajan about the creative math behind renewable energy credits. And we'll hear from Joel McCower of GreenBiz about what is actually making an impact in corporate sustainability and what is still holding it back.
2: The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a Frontier Forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, cost, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events.
0: The emissions equivalent of 24 million cars. As Sandhuja said at the top of the show, that's how big the gap is between two different kinds of corporate emissions accounting. And to understand why companies can just make 24 million cars disappear without meaningfully changing their operations— we need to break down how the two accounting methods in question work. There are three different kinds of emissions. Scope 1 emissions come from equipment and operations directly under a company's control. Then you've got scope 3 emissions on the other end of the spectrum. Those come from suppliers and other activity outside a company's control. They're very difficult to track. And scope 2 emissions, the ones we're talking about here, come from the energy produced to power a company's operations. And there are a couple of ways to report them.
1: Companies can report something called as location-based emissions, which is, you know, hey, this is my office. I take some of this energy from, you know, our local grid. uh, And the grid, on an average, has like this emission factor that we're going to use. And we're going to say, we consume so much electricity, the grid's emission factor is something. And so we're going to multiply that and we're going to calculate something called as location-based emissions.
0: And then there's market-based accounting. That includes long-term contracts that a company might sign with a wind, solar, or hydro project in a distant place. Even though it might not be directly powering operations, that contract directly helped put new clean energy on the grid. It's a good thing. But this accounting method also heavily relies on a magic wand called a REC. That's a renewable energy credit. It's this certificate for the environmental value of a megawatt hour of electricity from wind, solar, or water. It's often generated in some far-off place. It's a separate, tradable commodity from an actual electron. And unlike those power purchase agreements, the RECs do not support new renewables. They're just a tiny revenue stream for project developers, so they are not decarbonizing the grid. But large companies have historically gobbled them up stuffing them into their market-based accounting models and use them as proof of how much clean energy they're
1: buying. When you use those market-based emissions against your goals and then you say, you know, we've slashed our emissions by 60% or 50% or whatever it is that you claim, is it really helping the environment?
0: The answer, at least when it comes to recs, is probably not. A study just published in the journal Nature Climate Change looked at 115 companies with science-based targets. These are targets modeled after the Paris Climate Accord. And researchers found that 42% of planned emissions cuts from those companies will, quote, not result in real-world mitigation because they rely on RECs. Take those credits out of the picture and poof, no ability to meet their goals. Sinduja and Ben also wanted to quantify just how much these wrecks are skewing reality, and they looked at data from thousands of companies. So let's get into some of the specific claims that you were tracking and comparing. What were some of the big picture claims from top companies that you started to dig into?
1: So, you know, we looked at so many companies. And, you know, for example, Procter & Gamble, you know, decided to sla- claim that, you know, it, it slashed. Ah, fifty percent of its emissions. Uh, and then, when you really look at you know how they got to that fifty percent reduction, then a lot of it is using renewable energy credits but if you if you calculate it without the credits, then that's like a a, a difference of twelve percent with Cisco, again, you know emissions uh, reductions and claims using um, a certain form of accounting would be 60 percent. But then when you actually uh, remove the credits from the uh, equation, then their emissions have actually gone up by 22 percent. Another example that comes to mind is um, Intel, uh, where, you know, their emissions have actually gone up by 38 percent. But when you like calculate, using renewable energy credits, then it only goes up by like 17%. So there's like a huge gap between when you take those credits and then when you don't take those credits. And we write about so many companies that are doing that. And some of the companies we mentioned in the story are Procter & Gamble, Cisco, Visa, Intel, Pepsi, Continental, AG, and, you know, Deloitte. So And, and that's just scratching the surface in terms of like the companies even doing it.
0: Did the gap between claims and reality surprise you?
1: If I had seen like more companies that were like unknown names, smaller companies, and if I'd seen a different trend, I would have, you know, not been as as surprised. But I think just the scale, the size, and the number of companies involved did surprise me.
0: So you are a data reporter, climate sustainability is not your specific beat. As you dug into this and come out of the story, analyzing all this data, do you think differently about corporate sustainability or the claims that you, environmental claims that you hear?
1: Uh, um, absolutely. I think you know the reporting process has spurred a lot of like interest. Personally, for me, to like look for more because this is you know analyzing scope two emissions, specific you know instruments. But what else is out there? What else are companies doing? And I think that, you know, particularly when it comes to climate, I feel like there's so much data that's not been mined. When you read an ESG report and you see a company slashing its emissions by 15, 20, 50, 70%, like, what do you believe?
0: Sindhuja Rangarajan, thank you so much, a real pleasure.
1: Um, It was a pleasure for me as well, thank you so much.
0: We're going to take a quick break here. Afterward, we'll hear from green business Joel McCower, who's been following corporate sustainability for nearly three decades. And he says the problems go way deeper than just accounting.
2: Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes.
0: There is absolutely no doubt that most large corporations are thinking differently about climate change and sustainability. Even when casting those wrecks aside, nearly 40% of renewable energy added to the U.S. grid since 2014 came from corporate power purchase agreements. That's according to the Clean Energy Buyers Association. Some companies, like Stripe and Microsoft, are setting negative emissions targets and investing meaningful sums of money in early carbon removal projects. And then you've got Google, which is pioneering renewable energy procurement on an hourly basis in an attempt to match 100% renewables on the grid for its operations. Meanwhile, shareholder pressures are pushing boardrooms to adopt ESG strategies, and extreme weather risk is forcing companies to evaluate their logistics. A lot is happening.
3: And, you know, that's the good news. The bad news is that it's still not happening at the scale, scope, and speed that we need.
0: Joel McHour has been following this space for three decades. He's someone that I've also followed closely to get a read on how corporate sustainability is playing out. He's the chairman and co-founder of the Green Biz Group, and I caught up with him at GreenBiz's Verge conference recently. I wanted to get his read on what all this activity adds up to, because it certainly feels different, but is it actually different? Joel doesn't think we're at a stage of radical transformation yet.
3: Well, I think it is important, but I also think it's still relatively few and far between that, you know, yes, Microsoft, yes, Amazon, yes, Walmart, you know, yes, uh, you know, a handful of other companies, mostly in the tech field, but it's the same old companies, Stephen. It's the same ones we talk about, but in the rest of the corporate world, it's still radical incrementalism. You know, just a lot of small ball kinds of things that companies are doing that, that you know are necessary, but highly insufficient, and do not roll up to the to the magnitude of the moment. And that's the challenge: is that yes, there, you know, and 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 look, I've been in this field for over 30 years, and and every every year, certainly every few years, you can say there's there's a, there's some new things. You know, circular economy, ESG and sustainability, carbon removal, just on and on and on. And and yet, so many of these events and so many of these conversations is February 2nd. It's Groundhog Day all over again. And so, that's the challenge. That's the frustrating part. Um, Most days, a glass half-full kind of guy, but frankly, I think the glass is just way too small.
0: Mm. Why is that? What are the forces inside companies that are contributing to that incrementalism?
3: In a word, Change. You know, change, you know, we all love the noun, but hate the verb. You know, we like the idea of change. We need to change, you know, the things need to change. We need to change the system. We need to change the way this is changing itself. The verb is actually hard to do, really hard to do. And, and there's a lot of resistance to that. And inside companies, you've, you know, it used to be back, you know, in the day, it was like, get CEO buy in, you know, and, and well, CEO say, I'm in. I, this, we need to do this stuff. And, and the young recruits, they want this stuff. It's that big fat, impenetrable wad of, of resistance called middle management that's often thwarted. They're really adept at thwarting change. And so, you know, and, and some of that's, you know, C-suite led to, they're, they're they're making these commitments, but they're not really equipping, you know, the people to, to, and supporting them to make the kinds of changes they need to know, they need to make. But I think an even bigger issue is that it's still, when it all even happens, it's still not enough. And you know, we really, uh, need to transform our economy. We need to transform how we make and do things. We need to transform the business models. We need to tr- transform the consumption habits. You know, we need to change everything and that's an extraordinarily exciting opportunity. But it means that all, that, that everybody's in a, a, a threatened incumbent. And so there's, you know, and threatened incumbents are known to throw up huge barriers and walls and they've got lobbyists and all kinds of things. That to me... Is the biggest obstacle. It's so far just seen as a mandatory requirement disclosure. You know things that about change and change. The, the only thing worse than having to change is having to be forced to change. And so I'm sorry I'm just keep using the change word, but that's really where it comes down to.
0: You know it's it's so interesting um, your your take because if someone had asked me how different is this world, I would probably give them a much more optimistic answer than you you gave and but but obviously i would probably give the examples of the biggest corporates and the folks that have been at the leading edge of this for a while and so what you're saying is that there is this whole range of you know mid-sized companies that haven't even really grappled with this uh, or maybe they're just starting to and can you be more specific like when they're not doing things what are they are they just not setting targets are they not are they did they not hiring the right people like what is causing that inertia inside this broad range of companies that still are not grappling with sustainability
3: well there's not a question you can ask me of that sort of big picture nature where the answer doesn't begin it depends <laughs> <laughs> and and it depends a lot on uh, you know, again, is this there's a political piece? There's um, the uh, you know our, we're doing great. Our customers love our products. No one's asking for us to do anything things more sustainably. Um, we're privately held, so we don't have any investors or, or SEC reporting requirements. Um, uh, you know, there's uh, no one's you know the media, the activists, no one's beating down the door saying you must change, and so. If you're doing well and no one's forcing you to do it, you know why do it? Because it, it's disrupt. It can be disruptive, and it can be disruptive in a really good way. Um, so I just think there's just a lot of re- again. I'm, I'm going to come back to it, it's re- a lot of resistance to change if you don't have to, and a lot of companies don't yet feel you need to do this. And by the way, I am an extremely optimistic person. I mean being in sustainability is an inherently optimistic profession. We wake up every day thinking about solutions, about moonshots or earth shots now and 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 thinking about how do we tr- transform things. So I, I don't mean th- you know to not be optimistic. We have to be because the alternative is just <laughs> too damn depressing. But yeah, I'm also realistic. With what's going on out there, I'm not you know there are people who say, yeah, sustainable business and everything's changing and the world's going to be better and hope maybe but there's just so much that we that's not happening yet the way it needs to happen we are not on on path to meet the climate the, the paris goals we're not on path to meet the sustainable development goals we're not uh, on the path as a nation in, in in this country united states to meet even you know basic goals or even in states that have set re- renewables targets or carbon reduction targets And so we've got a lot of work to do. You can look at that as, uh, oh, my God, it's depressing, or as as an amazing opportunity. I obviously prefer the latter.
0: Let's talk about sticks. So there has been a major move internationally to get securities regulators to uh, force public companies to disclose climate risk. That has played out at the Securities and Exchange Commission here in the U.S., and we're starting to see rules come together on disclosing climate risk. How important do you think that is
3: i think it's important i don't think it's a, necessarily the game changer that a lot of people i think profess it to be look you need a base you need a you know you need some compliance you know and the, the definition of compliance is that if it was any less it would be illegal and so you know, you need you need to set that minimum expectation but that's—it's a floor. It's not really—you know—the minimum expectation isn't going to again get us where we need to be going. Um, so I think it's—I think it's great. I also think it's going to in in its practice in the compliance of with whatever the SEC ultimately comes back with is going to be with sufficient—not necessarily loopholes, but the ability to meet the requirements with a bunch of vague language um, that doesn't really get to what. We were hoping it would get to in terms of companies really assessing their risks and 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 starting to first of all disclose them and then ultimately hopefully dealing with them. I mean, you know, when I talk about the, you know, give presentations about. All of this stuff. And you know, people say, what's the business case? As if there's a business case for destroying the planet. Uh, and I say, well, there's an old answer and a new answer. The old answer is, you know, about reducing costs, increasing revenue, attracting talent, being a preferred supplier, obviously reputational stuff, blah, blah. blah. And that's not untrue, but really it boils down to one word: risk. Financial risk, reputational risk, right to operate risk, transitional risk, technology risk, regulatory risk, there's lots of different flavors. And I think that, that um, you know, making – the SEC is trying to pull – and a lot of the and, – and, and its counterparts around the world is trying to pull out that risk so that everybody can see it and it's visible. And for investors, for employees, for customers, whoever it is, neighbors, um, I don't have great hopes that the regulations are actually going to accomplish that. I think there's a lot more, you know, in the task force for climate related financial disclosures and then now the task force for nature related financial disclosures, that a lot of those things, which will be enforced through contracts, supply, supplier relationships, um, buyer seller relationships, uh, will have more clout, uh, bigger sticks than, uh, and, and, and and then, of course, the carrots of, of the opportunities and the ability to either retain business or gain new business—I think or attract talent or all those things that is part of my old answer, which you're still relevant. So, I think you know the risk piece of this is fascinating.
0: So the risks and impacts are worsening, but the on the positive side the technologies and solutions we have are getting a lot better and so you know over the past 30 i mean the the, the amount of solutions we have at hand compared to when you started in this field 30 years ago are just wildly different um,
3: yeah and that's and that's the happy story here and it certainly is the story here at verge and it's not just the so-called green and clean or climate technologies you know like EV and solar and wind and or even you know a lot of it's just you know it's it's AI and robotics and optical scanning and and, and synthetic biology um, and uh, you know machine learning and 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 a whole bunch of other technologies that are going to allow us enable us to to track and you know gain uh, visibility into supply chains, uh, allow us to do uh, reshore uh, or localize manufacturing at a small scale to, instead of shipping things across oceans, allow us uh, to build materials that used to come from oil or it, in some cases I'm, work, I'm working with a company that's that's making an alternative to palm oil that's I- uh, chemically identical. But it comes in a factory and not from a field. And, um, and when you look at the destruction of you know, habitat and, and, and rainforest and all that to, in, in growing time, mean, those, are, those are revolutionary things. And the other piece, the last piece of – not last, but one other piece is just the, the impact on people, the opportunities that these technologies can bring – We're seeing, you know, companies lean into their smallholder farmers in remote parts of the world and giving them with just even not even a smartphone, but just a phone. They can now tap into weather and market conditions and buy and sell things and and report things and become uh, a a much more engaged and and hopefully resilient supplier to to these big corporate supply chains, improve standards of living. I mean, look, if we're not improving lives – And, you know, in in moving the needle on the biggest environmental challenges we have, this is not sustainability. It's just, you know, it's just helping business, you know, make more money. And we have to be improving lives here. And and I think that's one of the things that the good news is – the bad news is we're not really talking about that as much. And the good news is we have now all the tools and technologies we need to make those things happen.
0: Joel McHour, thanks so much. It's my pleasure, Stephen. Thank you. That is it for the show. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Go to canarymedia.com for show notes, uh, back episodes, lots of other good journalism from uh, Canary Media's reporters who you hear on this show. You can also uh, sign up for our newsletter at postscriptmedia.com. We've got a ton of shows constantly churning out. I mean, every we're trying to cover every element of the climate story, and so you'll get updates on what we're releasing. And I uh, hope you can join us because we've got some live shows coming up as well with our other co-hosts. This episode was produced by me and Alexandria Herr. Sean Marquand is our engineer. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm. It partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Go ahead and give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. You know, we ask it every single time, but there's a reason for that because it's really helpful. And thanks for spreading awareness about the show. And if you've got ideas for the show, then hit us up on social media, or you can send us an email to hello at postscriptaudio.com. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. We'll catch you next week.